Hi everyone, my name is Drew Ray and this is DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. DisasterCast is a listener-supported program with special thanks to the newest subscriber, Sagawa Sapphire, and to premium subscribers Patrick and Hunter. Way back in episode one of the show, I introduced some basic terminology for talking about accidents. In this episode, I thought I'd go back over that a little bit more comprehensively, reviewing the language of disasters. We'll work backwards, starting with the notion of an accident, and then going through the chain of potential causes of an accident to the notions of faults and failures. Long-time listeners of the podcast and safety specialists might find this stuff in this episode a little bit basic, but sometimes it's good to go back to the basics. A lot of standards contain definitions for safety terms. Sometimes they agree, sometimes they disagree in precise wording but agree in principle, and sometimes they disagree in quite subtle ways that reveal deep philosophical differences. The definitions I'm going to use in this episode are all my own, but I'll point out some of the debates along the way. Traditionally, Safety is concerned with preventing, or at least reducing, the harmful effects of accidents. This makes it quite an unusual activity because it's defined and measured in the negative. Just try describing what it means to be safe, and you'll quickly find yourself talking about things that don't happen, or won't happen, or shouldn't happen, or are unlikely to happen. Talking about safety through accidents isn't the only way to go about it, though. The safety two approach of Eric Holnagel provides an alternate perspective where drawing a line between things that are accidents and things that are safe becomes much less important to the idea of safety. Instead, the focus becomes just understanding the way work happens. For the purpose of our discussion in this episode, let's put aside safety two and say that safety is about preventing accidents. What's an accident then? Some people like to say that there's no such thing as an accident, because nothing happens purely by chance. That's a fairly useless thing to say, it's basically dismissing a useful term with nothing in its place. And we don't need probability to define an accident. An accident is simply an unintended event or sequence of events leading to harm. The type of accidents we talk about on DisasterCast typically involve platforms, A platform is just the largest engineered system in a particular situation, and the events leading to the accident are interactions between the platform and its environment. Usually in the environment is people or its other platforms. So examples of accidents include collisions between road vehicles and trains at a level crossing, or an aircraft going off the side of a runway, or a factory robot running over the foot of a maintenance technician. The term unintended is included in the definition, so that we can consider the safety of things like weapon systems. For example, if a missile is fired and hits its target, then this isn't an accident. This is an intended event. And there are other sorts of negative intended events. So sabotage, for example, is not an accident. On the other hand, if a missile falls off the wing of an aircraft during loading and it breaks the leg of the loadmaster, then that is an accident, because it was not intended. Harm can be defined in various ways, but usually we focus on the effects on the human and on the physical environment. 
So harm is death, injury, material or environmental damage. Often we'll go even stricter and we'll focus just on the human element. Sometimes we'll go a little bit broader and talk about property loss and the value of property loss. Almost everyone excludes purely financial loss. So making a transfer of funds to the wrong bank account is not an accident in safety terms because there's no actual harm. These are considered risks, but they're project risk and security risk. They aren't safety risk. Accidents are normally associated with unintended or uncontrolled transfer of energy um, or inadequate control over harmful substances. So things colliding are uncontrolled kinetic energy. Explosions are uncontrolled conversion of chemical potential energy into heat and kinetic energy. Uh, If we're looking at harmful substances, we can think about things like food contamination with methyl mercury, or the release of firefighting gases that then suffocate people. It's helpful to think, though, about those things that look like accidents, but aren't actually accidents because there's no harm. So the word we use for those is incidents. An incident is an unintended event or sequence of events which creates a high probability of an accident without the actual harm occurring. Often it's just luck or human skill which prevents an incident from escalating into an accident. Sometimes it's because some of the protective measures have failed, but the remaining measures were just enough to prevent the accident. We talk a lot about incidents because they're important early indicators in trying to manage safety. Now, harm's a pretty general term. In practice, it's more common to talk about consequences. Um, Maybe we just do this as a euphemism, but I think it's really to encompass a broader range of effects of an accident. And the scale of consequences can go up and down by a long amount. Uh, We can range from just a minor recoverable injury to a single individual through to multiple losses of life and major environmental damage. So this axis that we measure along we call severity. Severity is just a measure of the extent of the harm associated with an accident. Um, Typical ways we measure severity, uh, we talk about the number of lives lost or the number of severe injuries or illnesses or the number of minor injuries. Or sometimes we'll talk about the cost of rectifying the material or environmental damage. We tend to distinguish between minor and major injuries, which is a little bit odd because... For the person who's exhibiting an injury, um, it's pretty much always major. But it can help sometimes to distinguish between things that will heal completely, like minor cuts, uh, that don't have long-lasting effects, and those which are permanent, like paraplegia. Industrial practice in measuring severity varies a fair bit. It's quite often to use bands. So we have minor, which matches up to single minor injuries, and then one step up, is several minor injuries or one major injury, and then one step up again is several major injuries or one fatality, and so forth. Why do we do this? Why do we separate out different bands of severity? Um, Mostly it's because it lets us focus our effort by concentrating on the more severe accidents. It can be a big problem when too much attention in safety is paid to low severity events, 
sometimes called slip strips and falls, and not enough attention to high-severity events where multiple people die. It's that sort of thing that gives safety a bad name because it's trying to control very minute behaviours that don't have a lot of consequence to them, but seems to be ignoring the important things in life. It is possible to go to the other extreme, though, and you can have safety programs that place too much attention on things that will never happen. So there needs to be a balance. We need to consider the likelihood of accidents as well. Accidents can typically occur in more than one way. There's more than one sequence of events that can lead to an accident. Sometimes we'll talk about the causal web, the whole nexus of circumstances that can lead to an accident arising. And the likelihood of an accident is the combined probability of all of these circumstances that are sufficient to cause the accident. And in order to turn that into a probability, we need to define it over a particular period of time. In general, working out the likelihood will involve considering the likelihood of all of the events that need to go together, both within the system and within the environment. It can be pretty hard to actually work out accident probabilities, so we typically work in terms of hazard probabilities instead. We'll get on to hazards in a minute. There are also issues to do with just the dimensions that we use to measure probabilities. We could do it per single operation, or per operational hour, or per the operational life of the whole platform, or maybe the operational life of the whole set of platforms. All of these different ways have different uses. The most important thing is to be consistent in using probabilities, so that any decisions that are made actually compare like with like. Once we know severity and probability, that allows us to evaluate risk. There are lots of different definitions of risk as well. In safety, we're typically talking about risk as a combination of severity and probability. So accident risk is the combination of the likelihood of the accident and the consequences of the accident. The concept is pretty simple, and if you want to do it naively, it can be easy to use. So for example, assume we know the following about an accident. The accident is collision between a road vehicle and a train at a level crossing. The likelihood of this happening is one in a million for every hour of the level crossing. And typical severity of the accident will be four deaths. So we can plug the numbers together and say the risk associated with the accident is four by ten to the minus six deaths per hour per level crossing. If we want to know how risky level crossings are, we can multiply that by the number of level crossings and by how long they're in service. Now, that way of working out risk only works if severity and probability are point estimates. In other words, there's only exactly one consequence and there's exactly one likelihood. In practice, of course, it gets a lot more complicated. One of the difficulties is that there's probably a range of consequences possible for any given accident. And that's one of the reasons why we introduced the idea of a hazard. If we want to prevent accidents, actually managing at the accident level gets tricky. We really need to manage at the level of causes in some systematic way. If each accident could only come about in one particular way, then we could use the accident. Instead, they come about through this complex web of circumstances. So we use the idea of a hazard as a manageable division of the accident causes. 
Informally, we might just say that a hazard is a potential accident. It's an accident waiting to happen. Um, And it's actually quite hard to get more precise than that. And there's no consensus in the safety research or practice community on what the real definition of a hazard is. Sometimes hazard refers to a substance, sometimes it refers to an event, sometimes it refers to a state of the system, sometimes it refers to a property of some item. And you'll find whole workshops and debates trying to find the correct meaning of hazard. It's all really a bit futile because you can't actually give a perfect technical definition to something that isn't a technical concept to begin with. The purpose of hazard is that it's a management unit. It's not a technical property of the system. So my own working definition, which I use in teaching, and this is the way I use hazard on the podcast, is that a hazard is a behaviour of a system, which is undesirable and proximate to an accident. So if you see a system behaving in a strange way, it's not what it's meant to do, and you think, gosh, that's dangerous, then probably it's exhibiting some sort of hazard. Hazards cause accidents. A hazard has to occur in order for an accident to occur. If you could have an accident that didn't involve any sort of identified hazard, then that's because you haven't identified all of the hazards. And a lot of hazard and safety analysis is then concerned with investigating this, on working out what the causal relationships are between hazards and accidents, and between more basic causes and hazards. And just like with accidents, we can talk about the severity and the likelihood of each hazard. It gets a bit complicated because what's the severity then of a hazard that could lead to multiple accidents? Clearly, the severity of the hazard has got something to do with the severity of the possible accidents. But if there's more than one, then do you talk about the most severe potential accident? Do you talk about the most likely potential accident? Do you do some sort of balancing act and talk about the expected outcome by multiplying likelihoods and outcomes? There's no correct way to deal with this. It's just a choice that you make. So the likelihood of a hazard is the combined likelihood of all of the circumstances that could cause the hazard to be. And the risk is the combination of the likelihood and the consequences, taking into account that hazards don't necessarily lead to accidents. If you take the most severe potential accident, the worst case, then typically what you'll end up doing is over-engineering the system, particularly if the outcome is very improbable. Um, In particular, it makes it very difficult to prioritise, because if you want to think of the worst case for any hazard, pretty much you can imagine that any hazard could lead to destruction of the planet in exactly the right circumstances. So extreme worst case thinking isn't very helpful. Um, In fact, what it tends to do is result in under-consideration of hazards where there might actually be something significantly more likely than the worst consequence. Using the most likely accident seems reasonable, but that can lead you to ignore the long tail. So you're crashing into a tree. Most likely thing is you're going to walk away. But probably you want to manage crashing into trees based on the fact that it could kill you. Using expected values is very precise. Multiply the likelihood by the severity of each accident. Um, But that requires a lot of data and a lot of massaging of the data which in itself is not necessarily that useful. 
What we do want to do, though, for each of these hazards is to think about how it could come about, um, how likely it is to come about, and use that in order to reduce its likelihood. Uh, hazards can come about through things within the system, which we call endogenous causes, and due to things external from the system, exogenous causes, or combinations of both. So exogenous causes are things like lightning strikes, or impact of another platform, or interference, environmental factors. Internal causes are usually where some part of the system goes wrong. So they're failures or malfunctions of parts of the system, including failures or malfunctions that come about through design error. Here, what we often do is talk about faults and failures, things that go wrong with the system. And unfortunately, historically, fault and failure have been used a fair bit interchangeably. If you like starting arguments as a spectator sport, asking people to define a hazard is a good one. But an even better one is to put a bunch of engineers from different countries or industries in a room and ask them to explain precisely the difference between a fault and a failure. I've got my own explanation of the difference, of course. Just keep in mind that this isn't universal, it's just what I've found to be useful. So when I talk about a failure, I'm talking about an event. I'm talking about an unintended action that a system takes or that a person takes, or an unintended event. A fault is an unintended state. Um, now note that both of these definitions talk about things that are unintended, not things that are incorrect or unspecified. No one intends to cause accidents, but there can be systems that meet their written requirements but are still dangerous. And there's considerable empirical evidence that many accidents come about through flaws in the requirements and specifications, not in things not meeting their requirements and specifications. So you can't just say, well, the system did what it was supposed to do, so the accident didn't happen. Um, obviously, the accident did happen, so what it was supposed to do wasn't what it was supposed supposed to do. So that's why we use the term unintended, and rely on the fact that the intent is always to prevent or reduce the chance of accidents, rather than talk in terms of specifications and requirements. Now, the definitions of failure and fault cover all deviations from intent. So not all faults and failures have safety significance. There are things which can be unintended, unintended events or unintended states, that aren't dangerous, they're just not meant to be for other reasons. So some examples. Um, if a wing breaks or buckles, that's a structural failure. It's something that happens. It may come about because the system was in a state where there were excessive forces on that wing. So that's a structural fault. Um, you could have a system failure where a road barrier at a level crossing uh, doesn't close, caused about by a system fault which is inadequate locks that are jamming the system. As you might be able to see from those examples, faults give rise to failures. Unintended states give rise to unintended actions and events. And it continues onwards. Unintended actions and events can lead the system to be in unintended states. So it tends to be this goes across the design hierarchy, with failures of small things causing faults in the system that they're part of, causing failures of the systems that they're part of, and so forth, going up, until you have the overall system in a faulty state, and then doing incorrect things. 
Not all faults will necessarily cause platform-level failures, because part of the thing that we try to do when we design a system is to eliminate single points of failure. We try to make sure that just having some faults isn't enough to cause the overall system to do something unintended. So sometimes we talk about triggers. So a trigger is the set of conditions which activates a fault, giving rise to a failure. It's not enough for safety to just talk about things that work and things that don't work. That can be a bit misleading because things don't work in lots of different ways. And we really want to know what it is that they're actually doing, not just the fact that they're not doing what they're supposed to. So we talk about failure modes or failure conditions which are the manner by which we observe the system going wrong. So it might be that something fails by not performing its function when it needs to. Or it might fail by falling into pieces. It might fail by sticking into a particular state. When we design systems, we try to make it clear that faults can be identified so that we can fix them. Obviously, faults that you don't know about can't be fixed and can later lead to failures. So sometimes we identify specifically things called dormant faults or latent faults, which are ones which are present, but you don't know that they're there. So a dormant fault can exist in a system for a long period of time, and then suddenly give rise to a failure if under the right triggering conditions. Faults can come about often because of problems or limitations with the design. Although some failures arise from design faults, Some of them just arise from breakdown of otherwise intrinsically sound components. So we sometimes talk about failure mechanism. That's the process by which the failure occurs. So failure mechanism is the physical process that goes wrong, and then failure mode is what we see as a result. Now differences in failure mechanism are really where we come down to designing systems appropriately. So this is another distinction that we tend to talk about a lot. Uh, These are systematic failures and random failures. Systematic failures are faults introduced into a whole group of components because of the way they're designed or manufactured or installed or maintained. And the point about systematic failures is they happen to every component in that group. Random failures come about through physical degradation. And they happen whenever there's enough degradation that the component doesn't do its work. Um, Now, random failures are random in the sense that you can't predict their timing precisely. You can work out some sort of probability distribution, but that's all. Systematic failures, on the other hand, under the right circumstances, they'll always happen. So your stereotypical systematic failure comes about through a fault in the software requirements or coding, or a batch of incorrectly machined parts. Whereas a typical random failure is something wearing out, like a light bulb wearing out, or lead creep in solder. Because of the nature of random failures, it's possible to measure the rate at which they occur and make predictions of the future rates based on the past rates. It's not really possible to do that with systematic failures. Now, this distinction between systematic and random is fairly useful in practice. It's one of those things that's good in practice, not so good in theory. Because systematic faults are clearly the results of the design process in the broad sense. But random faults aren't random. They're not direct consequences of design, but the way in which they come about is. 
you, the rate at which a light bulb fails depends on the material you chose to make the light bulb out of, the thickness of the wire, how often you switch the light on and off, and all of those are design decisions. If you chose a different sort of light, you'd have different failure modes and different rates of occurrence. So random faults are the result of the design process. So whilst random and systematic failures can be useful, we need to be a bit careful. It's a bit too easy to say, well, that's a random failure, I can't do anything about it, when it comes about through a design choice, and those choices are things that you make explicitly. So we take all of these concepts, put them together, and it lets us say a lot more clearly what it means for us to be safe. Safety is when there's no unacceptable risk of causing harm. Now, we've talked, we now know what harm is, its severity, we know about risk, we can talk about whether that risk is acceptable or not acceptable. Two final terms worth throwing in. We sometimes talk not about safety, but about safety critical. So an item is typically said to be safety critical if its failure can cause hazards which lead to loss of life. And we sometimes talk about things being safety related or safety involved if its failure could lead to loss of life, but only if other independent things go wrong as well. Okay, lots of stuff there, a little bit dry definitional, but hopefully useful. Let's put it to the test by talking about a recent NTSB investigation and report. A Japan Airlines Boeing 787 was parked at Logan International Airport in Boston, Massachusetts, January 2013. And while it was parked there, its auxiliary power unit shut down. A maintainer went to inspect the compartment where the unit was and noticed heavy smoke and flames. There were maintenance and cleaning crew on the plane at the time, but emergency services got there very, very quickly, the fire was put out, and no one was injured. Since there was no actual harm, we'd tend to say that this was not an accident. The fire could have occurred in mid-air, though, where it could have led to a crash, so it's something that's proximate to an accident, there but for the grace of God, so it's classed as an incident. The hazard in this particular case was a lithium-ion battery venting smoke and flame. We talked about such batteries in a fair bit of detail back in episode 26. Lithium batteries are a relatively recent innovation, and they're dangerous for all of the reasons that make them useful. They store a lot of energy in a small, light package. The batteries themselves are flammable, and they can release explosive gas. So, useful but dangerous things. And Boeing and their subcontractor Talus understood the hazard fairly well. They knew that lithium-ion batteries could catch fire, and they judged that this hazard could be catastrophic. That severity classification is based, as they tend to do in airlines, based on the worst credible outcome. A battery fire doesn't automatically kill people, but it's quite plausible that it could, by itself, be enough to destroy a plane. Because of the severity of the hazard, there were quite strict likelihood targets. Something dangerous, so you don't want it to have a good chance of happening. However, the designers didn't fully understand the failure modes of the battery. They thought that the only way to get fire was to overcharge the battery. So they went from a hazard, where the battery vents smoke and fire, 
to a requirement that overcharging should have a likelihood less than 1 in a billion, or 10 to the minus 9 per flight hour. And in fact, there are other failure modes of lithium batteries, and including these specific lithium batteries on the 787. And the particular failure mode of the battery in this case appears to be an internal short circuit in one cell of the battery, leading to thermal runaway. That thermal runaway propagated to other cells inside the same battery, causing them to overheat, leading to a major fire. Now, it wasn't that Boeing, Talus, and the battery manufacturers, GSU Asa, ignored the possibility of an internal short circuit. Uh, But what they did was a thing called a nail penetration test, which is exactly what it sounds like. And on the basis of that test, they determined that a short circuit wouldn't lead to thermal runaway propagating between cells. This test is an instance of something that I'm researching at the moment, which I call probative blindness. It was a safety activity which failed to reveal the danger it was set up to reveal. Instead, it gave the engineers false assurance that the failure mode didn't need to be examined further. Now, despite the inadequacy of the test, and there being good reasons from literature, other industries, and even other aviation events that this could be dangerous, having performed the test, they were convinced that they didn't need to investigate the failure mode further, or even to include it in their quantitative calculations. We don't know exactly what caused the failure of the battery. The presumption is that it was a fault in the battery introduced during manufacture. This may have been wrinkles in the battery or foreign objects contaminating the cells or connections. And the battery inspections are another instance of probative blindness. The incident investigators found that the inspection equipment wasn't actually capable of identifying the types of problems that the manufacturers thought it could. So they were rejecting less than 1% of the batteries due to quality control. But that may have been simply that they couldn't spot problems, not that problems didn't exist. So the battery fire is representative of a random failure. Most batteries of this type or this batch would not fail in this way under the same circumstances. But it's the design choices that made the likelihood of the failure unacceptably high. The whole of the safety process was reviewed by the FAA in yet another case of probative blindness. The reviewers appeared to have checked the safety analysis, but they didn't challenge any of the assumptions. And the incident report highlights the need for analysts to state and defend their assumptions clearly, and for reviewers to check and challenge the evidence behind the assumptions. Otherwise, you've just got Talus believing that it's safe because GSU Asa says it's safe, and Boeing thinking that it's safe because Talus says it's safe, and the FAA thinking that it's safe because Boeing says it's safe, and everyone's relying on all of these levels of test and investigation, but the different levels are just all based on this one assumption based on one test that's simply not true. So in the language of safety, there were latent systematic faults in the safety assurance processes, leading to failure of those processes in this particular incident. We have a failure mechanism, which we don't quite know, leading to a failure mode, thermal runaway of the battery, leading to a hazard, battery on fire, leading to an incident where a real battery on a real plane is on fire. But fortunately, no accident. 
That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. Production this week was a little bit slow, my apology for that. The next episode should be out as normal, though, on 23rd of December. You can find out more about the show on disastercast.co.uk. You can leave a glowing review on iTunes or talk about it on your favourite social media. But otherwise, I'll speak to you again later in December. Till then, keep safe.